0: Welcome to a special episode of Curbside Consults. My name is Dr. Ken Wu, one of the 2019 to 2020 NEJM editorial fellows. In today's episode, we'll be interviewing Dr. Elissa Faulkner, who's the team leader of the winning project for this year's NEJM Resident 360 Quality Improvement Challenge. Now, back in February 2020, NEJM Resident 360 launched the inaugural NEJM Resident 360 Quality Improvement Challenge. We wanted to provide a platform for residents around the world to share their work in quality improvement with a global audience and an opportunity for these projects to be reviewed by leaders in the quality improvement community and compete for top prizes. To find out more about the background behind creating the challenge and quality improvement itself, please listen to our previous episode of Curbside Consults on the QI Challenge. The challenge opened for registration in March, and over 100 teams registered to compete in the challenge. Now, as I'm sure most of you are aware, this came at an especially difficult and busy time for the medical community due to the COVID-19 pandemic. Despite this, there was huge engagement with the QI Challenge. Out of the 63 teams that progressed through the qualifying round, 59 teams submitted posters based on their QI project. All of these posters are displayed on the QI Challenge website, with some posters receiving over 10,000 views to date. And the website itself has also received over 35,000 views to date. The overall winner of the challenge was a project titled, Standardizing Discharge Opioid Prescriptions to Improve Patient Safety, BA General Surgery Pilot from the Atlanta BA Healthcare System and Emory University. The team was led by Dr. Alyssa Faulkner, who is a general surgery resident, and we are delighted to have Dr. Faulkner with us today. Welcome, Dr. Faulkner.
1: Thank you, Dr. Wu, for that introduction and for having me on the podcast. I'm excited to be here.
0: We are excited to have you, and firstly, congratulations for winning the challenge. Now, I know it's been some time since we announced the winner, but how does it feel to have won? It feels extremely
1: rewarding to have won the challenge. We have devoted a lot of time and effort to this project, so to be acknowledged at such a respectable level by NEJM Resident 360 and a reputable panel of judges has been an honor. By winning it has generated a lot of new discussion and energy around our project.
0: So to start off with, how did you hear about the challenge and what made you enter it?
1: As you mentioned earlier, I'm a general surgery resident at Emory University, and I am currently out on my second year of research sabbatical. I'm completing a fellowship at our Atlanta VA called the VA Quality Scholars Fellowship. This is a national program that focuses on building leaders and scholars within healthcare. Through our network, I heard about the challenge. My focus is on quality improvement work, and at the time I learned about the challenge, I felt strongly that this project was in a position to be shared.
0: Okay, that sounds like a very exciting fellowship and a great opportunity. Now, let's move on to discussing your project, which is about opioid prescriptions in general surgery. For those of you who want to check out the poster, please visit the QI Challenge website for an in-depth look. Now, Elissa, can you give us a brief summary about your project?
1: Of course, at our local institution, we did not have any recommendations for discharge opioids after commonly performed procedures. We started a pilot within general surgery by reviewing available literature and coming to a consensus on recommendations for discharge opioids after commonly performed procedures at our institution as an interdisciplinary team. We rolled out these
0: recommendations in a
1: series of change cycles.
0: Now, opioid use is a major topic and issue in healthcare, especially in the United States. What made you choose this area to focus on? And how do you think your work fits into the wider picture of the current opioid epidemic in the US?
1: Opioids is definitely a hot topic right now. And I think it's called upon each of us as healthcare providers to reassess our contribution to the problem. As a general surgery resident, had personal experience with prescribing opioids after procedures and realized in our day-to-day routine how rarely we assess our prescribing patterns. This is what sparked my interest into looking at how surgeons may be contributing to this problem. What I found was that one of the most common adverse events after surgery is a patient's risk of becoming a chronic opioid user and that we create a large potential diversion of opioids into our community. A 2017 systematic review found that 42 to 71 percent, of opioids prescribed after surgery go unused. To me, this was a large opportunity that we as surgeons have just started to turn our attention to.
0: Excellent. So in addressing this problem, you used a wide range of QI methods and tools. And from reading the judge's comments on your poster, many commended your use of such a wide range. Can you tell us a bit more about these QI methods and why you chose them in particular?
1: Yes. I used the model for improvement for my project framework and then selected a robust set of QI tools for my project. It's very easy to get into the mindset of just doing when it comes to quality improvement work. To move QI work along as a rigorous field, we really need to use frameworks, theories, methods, and tools. From my fellowship, I've had experience with these QI tools. And when selecting them, I wanted to use tools that would push me to learn knowledge beyond my scope of what I thought I understood as a general surgery resident helps you think about your project more holistically instead of having blinders on from your point of view, like process mapping, cause and effect diagrams, and stakeholder interviews.
0: Now you mentioned process mapping, and I wanted to highlight a particular aspect of your poster. Although at an initial glance, your process map looks very complex. So taking a closer look, it's actually quite straightforward to follow and very effective at identifying areas of opportunity. Process map was also praised by the judges. What advice do you have for creating a process map that is easy to follow and effective at identifying areas of opportunity?
1: When creating a process map, I think I would say there are three major tips to keep in mind. First, start with the big picture and then go more detailed. Your first round of process mapping really should have six to 12 steps within it. Secondly, make sure to interview many different individuals who partake in the process you are mapping and check back in with them to make sure you are understanding the process correctly. For me, it would be very easy to say, oh, I'm a general surgery resident and I prescribe patient opioids regularly, basically daily. So I know this process. But to take a step back from that and realize that you are only one perspective of this process and that there are many others. And thirdly, it's an iterative process, and as you learn more information, don't be afraid to go back and change your process map, even changing where your process starts and stops. There is no right answer. Even though my project is focused on standardizing discharge opioid prescribing, my process begins in preoperative clinic when the patient is scheduled for surgery. In my mind, there's opportunities even before the patient has surgery to discuss opioids,
0: Great. So you touched on the theme of an iterative process, and on that theme, an important part of quality improvement are PDSA cycles, which stand for plan, do, study, and act. What were the important lessons that you learned from each of your three PDSA cycles that you outlined in your poster, and how do they influence the next cycle that you carried out?
1: You raise a very important and understated point about PDSA cycles with this question. It's very easy to get to the point of PDSA cycles and just start planning all of them at once. Well, we'll implement this and then this, but you really need to take time to thoughtfully review each cycle and what you wanna take forward from it. It's like when you're having a conversation with someone. You can either choose to listen what the other person is saying and take a moment and respond thoughtfully, or you can just start planning the next thing you're going to say, regardless of what the other person is telling you. From our first cycle, we learned that our providers were having a hard time remembering to look at the recommendation handout. So we thought of how to make this more of a forcing function and more automatic. And from this, we developed a pre-populated electronic order set. Even within PDSA cycles, we were eliciting feedback from providers about how to improve that exact cycle. Like for the dashboard, there are many different graphs and images we could be showing our providers, but we wanted to understand from their perspective but would be the most meaningful to them.
0: You make a great analogy uh, with the process of having a conversation with someone and PDSA cycles. Now, if we stay on PDSA cycles in general, what advice or tips do you have for people who are planning on doing PDSA cycles for their own projects?
1: First, I would recommend starting small. Do not pick too large of a project or too much to accomplish within one PDSA cycle. You want to be able to see if this one change has made a difference. If you're doing too much at once, you will never be able to point your finger and say, this is the change that led to a different outcome. Secondly, although we like to envision that every change leads to an improvement, realistically, it may not. And even if your PDSA cycle is not going as planned, don't let that paralyze you. It's an opportunity to learn from what doesn't work or to clarify for your next PDSA cycle. As the saying goes, failures and learning opportunities are the same thing. It's just a frame of mind. And this holds true with regards to PDSA cycles.
0: Okay, so let's move on to discussing a bit more about your uh, results. Now, in your results, you described how the interventions you made resulted in a decrease in non-adherence to standardized discharge opioid recommendations. Now, because the project is a pilot, how do you envision developing this further?
1: That's a great question. And I think we chose to do a pilot with the same concept of starting small and not biting off more than we could chew our first time around. Since we have sustained our improvements within general surgery, our first priority is to expand recommendations to other surgical services locally and as well as to other VAs nationally. We are also looking into other opportunities within our process map, like preoperative expectation setting, preoperative risk assessment, and safe opioid disposal knowledge.
0: Okay, so let's move on to um, your experiences of competing in the challenge itself. So how did you find competing in the QI challenge, especially during the middle of a -a once-in-a-generation global pandemic?
1: The challenge opened just as we were preparing for the pandemic to really hit within the U.S. And I remember submitting my poster early March. By the end of March, I remember receiving notifications for upcoming conferences being canceled, rescheduled, or moved to virtual, which was just a bummer. So to receive an email that the challenge was going to continue as planned was exciting and nice to have something that reminded me of the old normal and grounded me during these times of uncertainty.
0: Absolutely. And just for you, so what are some of the highlights of competing in the challenge? You know, apart from winning it, of course.
1: Well, all the judges for the challenge are highly respected within the field of QI. So to have the opportunity to share my work in front of them, elicit feedback, and answer questions was a highlight for me. It also created a unique opportunity for me to really get out there and share the work I've been doing with a sense of urgency to draw attention to the challenge website and my
0: poster. Now, as part of your prize for winning the challenge, you are invited to write about your project for NEJM Catalyst. Now, for those of you unfamiliar with NEJM Catalyst, NEJM Catalyst brings healthcare executives, clinical leaders, and clinicians together to share innovative ideas and practical applications for enhancing the value of healthcare delivery. The NEJM Catalyst website launched in 2015 as a platform to share innovative ideas and practical applications for enhancing the value of healthcare delivery. A new peer-reviewed journal called NEJM Catalyst Innovations in Care Delivery launched in 2020, focusing on the latest innovations, big ideas, and practical solutions for healthcare delivery transformation. So Elissa, what has been your experience so far working with the NEJM Catalyst team?
1: The team has been great. I've recently spoken to Dr. Mota, the journal's executive editor and one of the judges. I'm working on a case study for submission to the NEJM Catalyst of the pilot project. So hopefully keep an eye out for that in the near
0: future. Absolutely, and we all look forward to reading more about your project and any future projects that you're working on. Now, congratulations once again for winning, and it's been an absolute pleasure to have you with us today.
1: Thank you Dr. Wu and the team here at curbside consults for having me here today. I've had a great time discussing our project and my experience with the challenge. If you have any questions or feedback, please reach out to me via email at e s a l c o n emory.edu or you can find me on social media as well. My Twitter handle is F-A-L-C-O underscore underscore E. Thank you guys for having me.
0: Great. And that wraps up this episode of Curbside Consults. To check out Dr. Faulkner's poster, as well as the posters of the finalists and other teams, please visit the QI Challenge page on the NEJM Resident 360 website. Please also look out for further challenges and opportunities in quality improvement from NEJM Resident 360. Special thanks goes to Karen Buckley and the NEJM Resident 360 QI Committee, Drs. Jeffrey Drazen, Namitan Seth Motor, Brian Wong, and the 2019 to 2020 NEJM editorial fellows, Drs Krista Noddage, Ahmad Zaheen, and myself, Ken Wu. Curstide Consult is a production of the NEJM group, and we come to you from NEJM Resident 360. Our production team here at NEJM Resident 360 includes Karen Buckley, Carl Simmons, Mike Thomasis, Tim Bining, Scott Williams, and Kathy Stern. Special thanks also to our NEJM Education Editor, Dr. Opie Hanvik. If you have any questions, feedback, or suggestions for future podcast topics, please email us at resident360 at NEJM.org. You can also follow NEJM Resident 360 and NEJM on Twitter, and look for NEJM on Instagram and Facebook. On behalf of NEJM Resident 360, this is Dr. Ken Wu signing off.